I was out here at the Eastern Pad. But that's... 50 miles east. ...from where we found him. Hey. Wait, 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 wait. Do you know where your parents are? Your family? I guess he was on a picnic or a camping trip. He wandered off and got himself lost. Been out in the woods, doing things his own way. Sounds like a boy after your own heart. How long has he been out there? Six years. Nobody can survive in that forest for six years. At least not alone. You'll see. I have Elliot. Who's Elliot? This is Electric Shadow. I'm Moises Chuyan. Sequels, remakes, reboots, reimaginings. Whatever you want to call the constant recycling of intellectual property is something that many have claimed to be the downfall of cinema for some time. Well, cinema's not dead yet. They're still making movies. But as many of us out there would have you believe, they don't make them the way they used to. So imagine my surprise when I walked out of a movie recently that matched a few of those descriptors. Remake, reimagining, reboot, and felt like I'd seen one of the best movies I've seen this year. Movies Pete's Dragon from Disney, directed by David Lowry, co-written by Lowry and his partner Toby Hallbrooks. They've worked previously on movies including Ain't These Bodies Saints, Saint Nick, and various others that I've seen on the festival circuit here in Austin uh, on video demand and otherwise. I went into an advanced Austin screening of it in conjunction with the Austin Film Society, worried that I wasn't going to like the movie. I didn't like the original. And so I think that I might have been more shocked than anybody that I came out being elevated, moved, profoundly affected by a children's movie based on a children's movie that I didn't enjoy in the first place. Pete's Dragon is still in theaters, and it's got pretty good legs. People are still going out to see it because there's something about it that they've captured that you can't just bottle, you can't just package, you can't just squeeze into something and make it a success. There's something authentic, lived in, and deeply felt. And it's something that, as much praise as the movie's gotten, I don't think it's gotten enough praise in this respect. On this episode of Electric Shadow, I speak with David Lowry and Toby Hallbrooks just the afternoon after that advanced screening. This episode of Electric Shadow is brought to you by Mack Weldon, Drobo, and Fracture. You'll hear more about them as the show continues. This episode continues a series on voice acting that will continue on through the fall. If you wonder how this movie has anything to do with voice acting and voiceover, well, you'll find out as the episode continues. Later this week, we're going to post a Star Trek 50th anniversary tribute episode featuring the one and only George Takei shortly on the heels of that an episode with Batman the Animated Series star Kevin Conroy and sometimes go star Mark Hamill. A lot of interesting stuff coming, thanks to a recent trip up to Toronto for Fan Expo Canada. Now, without further ado, let's go straight in with Toby Hallbrooks and David Lowry. To start off with, I'm curious about where you guys grew up. This is a this is a movie about growing up. Uh, you guys have worked on movies about uh, growing up and, and being rascally kids. So what kind of rascals were you? I started off growing up in Wisconsin, in Milwaukee, and moved to Texas when I was eight years old and have lived in Dallas ever since. And always kind of, you know, my parents always made a... a, a put a 
made it made sure that we had a big backyard. So that was always important, like having a, a, a big backyard to go build forts in and play in. So that was in spite of growing up in in the city, in the suburbs, that was always the, the wilderness was always part of it. Yeah, I grew up in uh, in the center of Dallas in a little little area called Town Creek. Uh, climbing in storm drains and gutters and uh, through creeks all the way to White Rock Lake. I, getting uh, getting stuck in the mud is a is a good way to is a good way to grow up. Covered Indeed. in burrs and everything. It's, it's true. Uh, so you both uh, you both discovered the original Peach Dragon as uh, as kids. Did you both wear out tapes of this thing? Was it was it that big of a deal to to each of you? I, I certainly did. I I grew up without a television or VCR. My parents were very. Uh, very focused on literature and not on movies or television uh, in terms of what we were allowed to to intake in terms of media. And so I saw the movie on VHS at a friend's house, which is how I saw most movies at that age. And I saw it once and liked it, but that was that was the end of that for me. What, uh, what did you manage to sneak in as uh, literature-based entertainment? Were you reading... Reading books that, uh, that that helped capture your imagination. I was I was a big fan of My Side of the Mountain, that kind of thing, kind of boy exploring the wilderness kind of thing. You know, it's funny that I never read that one. I watched that movie before we started work on Pete's Dragon because we felt it was a movie we should probably look at. But I'd never read that. But certainly, uh, the Boxcar Children were a huge influence on everything I've ever done. I think um, anything involving kids surviving the wild, whether it was something as Classic as Swiss Family Robinson or um, Julie of the Wolves. I mean, the Boxcar Children really was sort of like the end-all, be-all for me. But if there were if there were kids surviving on their own without adults, uh, preferably building some sort of fort, I was all over it. Calvin and Hobbes was another one. That was like that was a huge part of my upbringing. And every adventure he went on, everything that he did in those comic strips, I would try to replicate, including run away from running away from home to Alaska. Anything that you that you snuck that, uh, that that got in and corrupted your brain? I didn't have to sneak anything. My parents were grossly inappropriate in taking me to see everything from RoboCop to Pet Cemetery. Um, but my favorite things were definitely Calvin and Hobbes. Yeah, so sneaking wasn't really a thing for me. But I, I, I definitely, you know, Calvin and Hobbes was the big one for me. I would sneak away and I would just disappear for an afternoon reading those comics. As big Calvin and Hobbes fans, both of you, do you have... A particular strip, a particular collection that leaps out at your mind—one that you broke the binding of, you know, *Revenge of the Baby Sat*. Any uh, of the ones where where it wouldn't look like the traditional Calvin and Hobbes uh, strip at first, and then you realized it was just in his imagination. Like whether they were playing doctor or it was just he was God creating the universe. Those were all these ones that stuck stuck out to me. I think uh, um, *Yukon Ho* was definitely the biggest one for me in terms of the collections, and that whole that whole adventure is something that. Uh, has had a lasting impact on my life. I think in that in that um, strip, Hobbs packs marshmallow sandwiches for them to eat, and that was something I paid homage to in St. Nick when I had the little girl make a giant marshmallow sandwich, and I certainly made many of those myself <laughs> growing up, uh, particularly when I'd want to go have an outdoor adventure. I'd make sure to pack one. It was definitely, uh, that was definitely a big one. Scientific progress goes boink was another one that I loved. I loved the idea of, of making things out of cardboard boxes, and that was all about using a cardboard box to uh, push scientific limits to the, to the furthest boundaries you possibly could, so that was exciting to me. Um, there, I mean, pretty much any. I, I loved all of them, but those were, those were the two that I remember the most and think back on the most and that definitely had a big impact on me. 
playing outside, having a, a big backyard or wilderness to, to play with is something that I don't think a lot of kids get that much of these days. Uh, how else did you act out your imagination? Were you also, were you drawing, were you writing things, were you creating fantasy worlds, that kind of thing? Yeah, all, all of the above. I definitely spent a lot of time playing with my Star Wars action figures. I wasn't allowed to have G.I. Joes because my parents were anti-guns, so I didn't have any any G.I. Joes or... But the um, laser guns and laser swords, those are fine. Those are fine. Um, <laughs> just to, as long as they didn't have bullets. Uh, Choking but, people with a thought, totally fine. Totally fine, yeah. And 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 now, you know, looking back, I, I, I'd rather uh, expose kids to death by the dark side of the force than by a bullet. So it's a little bit more, uh, you know, it, it's less realistic, That's which is a, a thankful thing these days. But uh, the... You know, I did. I drew a lot. I drew comic books. I spent a lot of time just creating things, building castles out of cardboard boxes in the basement. Um, I definitely started once I realized how movies were made, which I was about seven years old. I started writing scripts, and I would build props and make uh, sets and and do all sorts of things. Even though I didn't actually own a camcorder, so I could never actually make the movies that I was planning. But I would I do everything else I possibly could, and I you know any 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 way that I could expend my imagination, I would. So whether that was just playing Willow in the backyard with my brothers and humming the soundtrack along with us, so the, to make our sword fights more exciting, or or creating giant dioramas with my Star Wars figures, or writing screenplays for uh, Indiana Jones ripoffs that uh, I was too young to realize I was ripping off so thoroughly. Uh, all, it was all fair game. I was, I was doing all of it. How about you, Toby? Definitely like choreographing pretty absurd action sequences. Um, it never occurred to me that even though I think I did, I had one of those camcorders that used cassette tapes and they were recorded black and white, but it never occurred to me that we could be making movies with them until like uh, I was a little bit older, but otherwise we would just choreograph these crazy stunt sequences in the neighborhood that would just like carry all the way from our our neighborhood into the creek and just continue a battle all the way, and just have insane games of Top Gun. We invented weird, yeah, all movie themed games. When, when my my dad took my brothers and I to see Last of the Mohicans, which was a big deal because it was the first time we'd gotten to see an R-rated movie, but he felt that, that would be appropriate for us, and. For years afterwards, we would go just play Last of the Mohicans, and our version of playing that was just to go find a big hill in the woods um, and run down it, yelping like Native Americans all the way down. And we get to the bottom of the hill and be like, "Okay, that was fun. Let's go do it again." And we just do that all day long. We just it would always be the same hill, and we just run down it all the time, like endlessly. And we got such a rush out of doing it, uh, and. And it wasn't really a game. It was just us running down a hill yelling. But that was our way of playing Last of the Mohicans. So in directing and working with kids in this movie, uh, what, what did you feel you needed to do to, to gear the script, to gear the production itself, to letting them be authentic kids? Because we've all seen kids on screen that are, are like robo kids. Uh, you know, like they like they've you know had a quarter put in them and their their clockwork or something like that. And one of the things that's beautiful about the movie is that these are really lived in, you know, realistic to the extent that a kid who's been raised by a dragon for six years yes. can be. Uh, you know, these are these are real kids that you've got. A big part of it is casting, and just you know, you spend a lot of time meeting kids and looking at videotapes of auditions and and looking for that. That quality that you can't quite put into words, uh, but you know it when you see it. 
and I I do you know recognize that the kids in this movie are incredibly talented actors on a technical level. They are able to hit their marks or memorize scenes or you know even even just being front and center in front of a camera for a 75 day shoot that requires an incredible amount of professionalism and and skill on a technical level but it was so important to me that they also uh be allowed to be children and to and and to to have the wherewithal to forget that there was a camera or a crew or even a scene that we were shooting and just get lost in the moment and be themselves I really wanted kids who could be themselves. And when I was looking for the, when I was casting the film, I wasn't looking for an actor who could play Pete. I was just looking for Pete. And we found that with Oaks. We found that with, with Una who plays Natalie. And so the biggest part of the job for me was, was casting it. And then the, the last, you know, 5% was creating a context in which they would feel comfortable to, to be themselves and to forget that there was a camera and to forget that there was dialogue that I needed them to deliver and just exist in this world, in this context that we created for them. And, uh, and once we did that, you know, I didn't really have to do any directing. I would sometimes need to go in and get specific and say, I need you to be quieter. I need you to, to say that line quieter, or I need this scene to feel a little bit more emotional or a little bit less emotional or funnier. Or, but a lot of that just came through me adjusting the volume of my voice when I talked to them. If I started to bring my voice really low, they would sort of respond and the scene would take on a quality that reflected that. Or if it was a big, exciting scene that needed to have a boisterous quality, I'd just talk louder. And you'd find these ways to communicate with them that would get them in the right zone without me giving them specific directions. And I often find that when you start getting really specific with the directions, you lose a little bit of the spontaneity that makes the performances that they're able to give so special writing for kids what was uh, what was a, a big important thing for you in terms of making sure that you were you were giving them something to work with it wasn't just uh, you know hit this emotional trigger hit this emotional trigger you know do do a do a dance you know entertain me i mean you just don't you don't talk down to them when you're you know you, you don't talk down to them uh or you don't write down to them you you know i would always try to like think like a kid when I was writing. I don't know, which isn't very difficult for me, actually. Uh, it's a blessing. I, maybe so. <laughs> we'll find out. But, um, yeah, so there, uh, it, it wasn't a challenge. I don't know. And I don't think we had to do tons of rewrites of their dialogue. It was all just kind of natural. And But definitely being cognizant of, like, not trying to make them sound stupid or, like, ignorant, you know, and or even too innocent, you know. It's just thoughtful. If anything, they're—I mean—they're really the most emotionally available characters in the movie. Exactly, they're the most intuitive. What uh, what kinds of uh, every movie anybody makes? You know, there are pleasant surprises, things that kind of get added in as the process goes forward. As you're making it, uh, were there any alterations or changes or just tweaks that you guys found that you made uh, during production? Things that you discovered once you were actually on set working with the actors, as you were, you know, part of the way through the process. I mean, that, all, uh, that changed anything all the time. Um, but I mean, it was so every day that it was just subtle i mean you know the actor can do this okay well we're gonna use that (laughs) um i don't know um i I don't know david what do you think i mean you you were actually one directing it so you had to do more there would be specific things where like a, a a very you know literal and and clear example would be 
uh, Carl Urban, working with him and, and utilizing him to the best of his abilities because that character was written in a very different way than he performed it. But when we cast him and started working with him and seeing what his strength, strengths were, we would change the character. Uh, we changed the character to, to, to fit what he could do. And he... He had, you know, he, he's a strapping dude. He looks, he's very handsome. He's tall. He's muscular. And we realized that rather than have this character be sort of a sliniveling, pathetic loser, he should be played as if he is, if he thinks he's the hero of the story. And Carl is a very heroic guy. He's got that stature. And so it was, it, it really played into his strengths to allow him to do that. So all of the dialogue that he would shout, like, follow that dragon, none of that was in the script. It was all stuff that came about because we saw how he was, how he could play best play that character. Uh, the scene where he walks into the cave with the flashlight—that was something that we came up with the day before we shot it because we realized that that guy would not just wait, you know, nervously outside of a cave. He would go in there and explore it and and try to solve the mystery because he does indeed think of himself as the hero. Carl said he wanted to play him like Indiana Jones. And and the the brilliant the brilliant idea that he had was that he thinks if he thinks he's Indiana Jones but is in fact like the villain of the movie, it allows him to be a little bit more sympathetic because he doesn't think he's doing something evil. He thinks he's saving the day. He thinks he's rescuing the family from the dragon in the woods, and doesn't uh, and and doesn't realize how poor his the decisions he make. Uh, he doesn't realize how stupid the decisions he's making actually are. Yeah, he comes off like the, the high school quarterback who's finally going to reclaim his, his glory of peaking in high school, and he's going to be the great hero that's going to slay the dragon. That's literally how we described it to him. I, I, was like, <laughs> I was like, dude, you were playing the guy who was the alpha male in high school and hasn't realized that the entire world has left you behind. Now you're fixing air conditioning units or something. Exactly. You're working for your younger brother's logging company. Up next on Electric Shadow, Lowering Hallbrook's talk about the choice to go CG with the dragon and where Elliot's voice comes from. But now this. Pete's Dragon is a movie about memories, about family, about finding your place in the world. And there is no better time than now to think about the place in the world that your digital data occupies. The good people at Drobo have been making storage solutions that make it easier to expand if you need to expand, safer in case you have a drive go out. Uh, Long story short, Drobo is the kind of smart storage that we've been needing for a long time. And if this is the first time that you've become aware of them, think of it as the external hard drive of your dreams. Whether you need something portable to take with you on the go, something that you want to connect to your home network and serve media from, or that you want to use in a professional video, audio, or photo editing sort of situation. And you want to make sure that above all else, your local data is secure. Why rely on just one drive when a bunch of us have various different hard drives sitting around our house? That's the beautiful thing about the Drobo. It's a beautiful black box you just shove your hard drives into. It does all the work and all the thinking for you. There are a variety of Drobo apps available on network Drobo products, like the Drobo 5N, one of my favorites. If you go to drobostore.com and use the offer code ESN1, that's Echo Sierra Nevada 1, you'll save $100 on Drobo 5D, 5N, Mini, or any 8 or 12 bay model. I'm a big fan of the B810 myself. Again, go to drobostore.com, use the offer code ESN1, and save $100. 
This episode of Electric Shadow is also brought to you by Mac Weldon. It's time to change your underwear, not just because it's a new day and you really should change your underwear once a day. I'm talking about your whole drawer of drawers. Get rid of them all. Whether you are planning to go hiking in the woods for a day or a few years, as in Pete's case. The look and fit of Mack Weldon underwear, undershirts, uh, polo shirts is really just the beginning. It really goes down to the science of the fabric that's used. Modal fabric is going to wick sweat away from your skin. There are antimicrobial features in these things. If you go for the silver product that I do, you're going to go entire days at some of the biggest conventions in the world or in some of the biggest national parks in the United States without feeling, you know, kind of wish I'd just brought another pair of boxer briefs. I wish I had just packed another set of trunks because I feel weighed down, not by the pack on my back, but what I've got under my shorts. The shorts inside my shorts. If you go to MacWeldon.com and use the offer code ELECTRIC, you'll save 20% off of your first order. If you want to play it safe, just order one pair, and if you don't like it, they'll let you keep it and refund you. I threw everything out of my underwear drawer and replaced it with Mac Weldon. And I'm going piece by piece of my ensemble as I can afford it and just getting rid of stuff. Sweatpants, undershirts, you name it. Mac Weldon has completely revolutionized my underclothes game. Thanks to them. Finally, this episode is brought to you by Fracture. If you have memories that you want to preserve, that you want to hang on the wall, that you want to proudly display, that you want to gift to friends and family... Go to FractureMe.com slash podcast, let them know that we sent you, and start printing your photos on glass. Now, this isn't something that you're going to go have to find a frame for. It isn't something that you're going to find a competitor out there that's doing this better than they are. The people at Fracture are manufacturing these themselves inside the United States, quality controlling them themselves, and responding to you personally. These are real people. There aren't robots. There aren't drones that are just taking care of things for them. These are real, good, hardworking people. I recently took a trip to their facility in Gainesville, Florida, and took a look at things that I wasn't allowed to photograph. The way that these images are printed to glass, and then they just put the mounting hardware on the back of it. So what you pull out of the box, you just stick it on the wall, ready to go. No additional framing needed. The glass is the frame. Being able to see your photographs or art going edge to edge on a beautiful piece of glass using high quality archival links is really something that will change your notion of, I'll get around to printing those and putting them in frames. There aren't multiple steps. You just upload your images, print, and wait for them to arrive. FractureMe.com slash podcast. Let them know that Electric Shadow sent you and save 10%. Thanks to them. Now, back to David and Toby. So the, the titular star of the movie, your dragon, is, is all CG, uh, beautifully composed by the people at Weta. Was there any consideration given to doing any sort of mixed practical and digital effect work with it? Or was it, well, we've just got to pick one and go that way? I absolutely pushed for a practical version of Elliot at first. And I, I felt that if, if, if Jurassic Park could have had that perfect marriage of animatronic and CG uh, visual effects, then why couldn't we do the same thing? And what really sealed the deal on not doing that was the fur, because we consulted with a lot of visual effects companies, and you know, even before Weta was on board, and the consensus was that if you have a character covered in fur, 
um, the practical fur and the digital fur will never m mesh. They will never look exactly the same. And we would have wound up replacing all of the, the animatronic uh, versions of Elliot with a fully CG version anyway. Because when you have fur on a character, it, all, it responds to things in a different way. Uh, when you have a real animal, the fur is going to move in a different way than it would if it was sewn into a big, you know, rubber animatronic. And so in reality, the digital fur can look more realistic than the animatronic version would. And when we started to realize that and, and see some examples of it, um, we realized that we'd really just be better off going fully CG. And that was a little, a little sad for me because I love practical effects. And I, you know, if, if I had, you know, had my druthers, I might have done this entire movie in stop motion animation because I just love things like that. But I, at the same time, I also know that that wouldn't be what modern audiences want to see. I think I've got a soft spot for stop, stop motion animation that uh, that looks, the, you know, that looks like Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer or even Nightmare Before Christmas, where it's a little bit rougher. And I think that children. Uh, of this generation who are going to see movies now at the age of four, five, six, seven, ten, they're so used to what CG looks like that if you see something more handmade or more herky-jerky that it, it would feel false to them. And so I needed to respect that. I needed to respect my audience and what they, what they are used to seeing. And when you look at something like Kubo and the Two Strings, which is or any Leica movie, the stop motion in that is beautiful, but they figure out a way to blend it with CG so that it doesn't feel strange to audiences. It feels the same as a movie like Frozen or a movie like Wreck-It Ralph, but it has the tangible qualities that I appreciate and I know to look for them, but, but, they, but they don't feel like the stop motion animation films of yore because I think audiences don't respond the same way to them that they, they may have in the past. One of the things that I that I like uh, so much about the movie is is the time that you set it in. We've got physical phones that are ringing. We've got some actual. It it, it doesn't feel like the surreal age that we live in these days. W was that an early choice that you guys went in, knowing that you wanted to make setting it a number of years in the past? We started writing this movie like within a week or two of Anthem Body Saints premiering at Sundance, and we premiered the movie within two weeks of finishing post-production on it. So we were still in that mindset. And that was a movie that we very definitively set in an uh, indeterminate time period because we felt it allowed the film to exist in a different realm. We wanted it to feel like a fairy tale to a certain extent. We wanted it to feel unstuck in time, to borrow a phrase from Kurt Vonnegut. And so as we began working on this literal fairy tale, it just made sense to do the same thing. And so... We used Ain't the Body Saints as an example of what we wanted to do, of how we wanted the film to feel like it took place generally in the past, noticeably in the fat past, but never with any degree of specificity. And there's some degree of nostalgia there. There's no doubt about it, but it's not a movie that's slavishly tied to nostalgia. We didn't ever put a movie on the theater marquee we never made references to what president was in office we never we never settled on an actual year that it took place and we just looked for things that felt right that felt like the right amount of yesterday the right amount of history the right amount of being in the past and if it felt right it worked for us and there was no guidebook for that it just was a gut instinct sort of thing but it definitely was in the script it was like you know we'd written scripts we'd written versions of scripts where 
where cell phones exist. Where cell phones existed or where um, the someone videotaped the dragon and it just always felt or wrong. Like drones or something. That people it never went that far, but just even like having like the local news channel go and film the dragon like that existed in one draft of the script and that could have existed in the 80s or the 70s that would have been fine but it just having that infringement of technology got in the way of the storytelling it got in the way of the magic and so it was better just to set the movie in a time period in a a place where that didn't feel possible or where it wasn't prevalent and where you could get away with having a fantastical creature be seen by a lot of people and yet still remain a secret what kind of freedom did that give you, Toby, in uh, in composing things, uh, both from from Anthony's body science, uh, you know, forward into this project? Did, did it, uh, you know, free up, uh, you know, any anxieties about, you know, would this work? Would this motivation work? Would you know this uh, thing or this other thing? It's just an operating principle. Like we, I, I feel like we, it, it freed us up just I don't know it, it just let us focus on the story and the things that mattered uh, about the story to us because it doesn't people being able to take pictures of the dragon or like mass communicate and quickly communicate about it what weren't the things that were appealing it was like the people that we the characters we had created we wanted them to have to rush over to somebody else if they were going to have to tell them what happened you know it wasn't about I can just let everybody know right now we're in the middle of the forest like we wanted it to feel isolated uh, and the whole community to feel isolated. So, I mean, that was a early on an idea we had. The movie did blow up really big in one version, um, but it just felt wrong. So it was a pretty, I don't know, it always, it, it, these things kind of weed themselves out pretty quickly. Like, uh, we can sniff out bad ideas pretty quick, luckily. Well, overall, it has this simple mythic structure and feel to it overall. Um, one of the things that I, you know, you mentioned uh, Carl Urban and not thinking of himself as the villain of the piece, I really think of the um, the inciting villain of the piece being Bambi. Uh, so I, I'd love to know, you know, what it is that you guys have against Bambi. Uh, you know, you know, was, was it uh, was it a particularly traumatizing movie in your childhood? I mean, it was, of course. Um, Bambi's Revenge. I, I saw somebody had written. Um, I, it didn't even occur to me. <laughs> yeah, I was just, you know. When we were making Anthem Body Saints, yeah. uh, we went to Skywalker Ranch, and to get to Skywalker Ranch, you have to drive, we went there to do the sound mix, and to get there, you have to drive down this 20-mile road that uh, is long and winding and, and co- surrounded on all sides by trees. Yeah, if it and, doesn't make you sick, it's nice to look at. Yeah, and we got there late at night, and what happens late at night is that the deer run across the road constantly. And so we were driving very, very slowly so as to not hit any deer. And nonetheless, we hit one. And it thankfully was okay. It got up and ran away. But, uh, but that moment quickly worked its way into the script three weeks later when we started writing the script. And, and it was, it, the visual of it is based entirely on my... I was behind the wheel and just the, 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 the gut reaction you have when you see a deer jump out in front of you... Uh, is incredibly horrific and primal and terrifying, and uh, I bear no ill feelings towards the deer whatsoever. It just wants to get to the other side of the road, but it definitely uh, makes driving a, on that road a more treacherous experience. And it felt like a good way to it felt like a good way to get the parents out of the way. Unfortunately, for the parents. Um, so one of the uh, participants in the movie that uh, that doesn't get uh, a lot of screen time, gets a lot of voice time, is John Cassier as the voice of Elliot. Um, at what point did you did you decide that you wanted a 
real legend when it comes to voice performance uh, to to do this rather than just you know see who casting came up with was it was it something that you were able to target as a as a priority or was it something that just kind of came up it was something that came about after a few months of trying to create a vocabulary for Elliot entirely out of animal noises and we were failing at it it just wasn't working he wasn't coming to life in the right way and the reason is that animals for all of their emotive qualities don't have the emotional vocabulary that humans do even in terms of how they growl or you know they have you they growl you know a cat will make uh, uh will purr at different pitches or add little noises to kind of let you know how it's feeling but it does it's not quite as dexterous as as what a human can provide and so we we realized that we needed a human being to go in there and imitate an animal but give it the the breadth of of emotion that a human uh, would have and that a human would recognize. Um, and so John Kassir got involved because we were doing some, some ADR for another part and his name came up on a list of actors who were available to come, you know, do this random bit of ADR that we needed. And I saw his name and freaked out because I was a huge Tales from the Crypt fan as a kid. And I still have the, the Tales from the Crypt Christmas album cassette tape that he did. And, and I was like, John Kassir's just sending his resume in to do a line of ADR. That is insane. And then I remembered that he had done the voice of the raccoon in Pocahontas, the Disney Pocahontas, um, because my mind is full of little bits of trivia like that. And I think you and I are the two people who immediately registered that. (laughs) (laughs) And I thought, I bet he does great animal noises. And then it turned out that my editor's mother was friends with him. And, uh, and so there are all these circles of connection and we called him up and, and said, yes, we would like you to do the ADR for this one line of dialogue we need, but also would you be willing to come in and try to put down some, some noises for Elliot? And so he came in and did some, some Elliot vocals. And over the next few months, we kept having him come back and do more and more until finally, uh, we had a pretty big library of sounds and we cut them into the movie. My editor, Lisa did a a masterful job of doing that. She really took the reins of, of creating that, uh, that performance in, in terms of how he vocalized himself. And then we brought John in one last time for a day to just go through and, and fine tune things and really, uh, you know, get specific with certain things that we'd cobbled together already. And it wouldn't have been the same. Like having heard the version of Elliot that is just lions and tigers and bears, uh, it wouldn't have worked. And having, his talent and skill and ability to communicate emotion through these weird yarbled sounds that his throat somehow is able to make uh, is is a vital aspect of the movie. And I'm, I'm really glad you asked that because I know it may get overlooked, but he, the movie would not have worked without what he did. Uh, one last thing as you guys charge forward into Neverland, uh, not asking for specific details or you know spoilers or anything like that, or even to comment on on other people that have uh, that have tried to tackle this thing. Is there a single element of the Peter Pan story that the two of you are individually are most excited about tackling? You mentioned you know sword fights in the yard and you know being boys on an adventure that kind of thing. Is there is there something that that you guys are uniquely relishing going after? I think it's it comes down to what I was saying earlier about, you know, playing Last of the Mohicans and running through the woods shouting at the top of our lungs. Uh, there's an opportunity to recapture that feeling, I think, in a very specific way. And yes, flight does play a part of it, but 
even if their feet never left the ground, I think there's something we can do with Peter and the Lost Boys and all these kids that don't want to grow up that will be primal and, and familiar and wonderful and exciting and feel new and familiar at the same time. And, and then I guess then, you know, to go back to the key tenet of Peter Pan, the idea of never growing up has been something I've dealt with and struggled with and tried to embrace and failed to embrace all my life. And so just spending some time working through that idea of not wanting to grow up is, is something that's probably necessary for me, but I'm also very excited about. I'm, I'm very excited to, uh, I'm, I'm digging in a lot in the difference between, or just the, the, the psychology of somebody who can't tell the difference between make-believe and reality. And I think, um, and all the things that David said, and just the struggling with growing up. I mean, mid to late 30s here, and I don't, I don't feel it. You know, um, none of the people that I work with feel it. David doesn't feel it. Um, but the struggling to grow up, you know, there's some things happening in, in the world and in life that are forcing us to grow up a little bit. So it's really enjoyable to dig into this character. Cool. Thank you, guys. Thank you. Sometimes the key to finding the heart of a story is paring it down to its simplest component parts. The emotions things that make it matter to you. What is it that takes you back to that big backyard, that clubhouse, that creek, that open field, that park that made you feel like a kid again? Whether you're a kid at heart or still a kid yourself. In this age where people stay indoors and don't go outside and arrange for playdates and don't just go outside and work out their imaginations. Pete's Dragon is a special film. I would urge you to give it a try, especially if you assume that you're going to hate it. You might find yourself pleasantly surprised. If you'd like to follow the show on Twitter, it's at underscore electric shadow. I'm at Moises Chu on Twitter. The network is at ESNFM. You can find show notes at ESN.FM. We'll be back very shortly in celebration of Star Trek's 50th anniversary with the one and only Mr. George Takei recorded this past Sunday at Fan Expo Canada on stage in front of a few thousand people. This episode was brought to you by Drobo, Mac Weldon, and Fracture. If you go to drobostore.com, use the offer code ESN1, you'll save $100 off your choice of 5N, 5D, 8 or 12 bay models or the Drobo Mini, use the offer code electric at macweldon.com to save 20% off of your first order and go to fractureme.com slash podcast. Let them know that you heard about them on Electric Shadow and save 10% off of your first order. Make those memories the sort of thing that you're proud to hang on your wall. If you forget any of that, don't worry. You can find it in the show notes at esn.fm. Just look for Electric Shadow, episode 38. I'm Moises Chuyan. We'll be back very, very soon with another episode of Electric Shadow, and then soon once again after that with Mark Hamill and Kevin Conroy, again from the floor of Fan Expo Canada. Thanks for listening. Talk to you soon.